Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Pensions Expert podcast. This week we'll be talking about how the government has refused to amend widely worded new powers for the regulator introduced in the pension schemes bill, how auto-enrollment is creating an employee underclass and how the Chancellor could change pension tax relief in the next week's budget. I'm Maria Espadinha, Deputy Editor at Pensions Expert and joining me are Sir Steve Webb, partner at LCP and Lydia Fern, Head of Defined Contribution and Financial Wellbeing being in Reddington. Welcome, Steve and Lydia. I would start to talk about this new powers uh, coming in the pension schemes bill and that caught everybody a little bit off guard, at least in the law, in the House of Lords. And now we've been discussing what, what's going on here, Steve. I think we've come a long way from when the government wanted to have a crackdown on rogue employers. This was an unnamed uh, head of a household name company who was alleged to have not put enough money in his pension scheme. And we had front paper news headlines about this was going to kind of crack down on employers. But words like reckless and willful can't be found anywhere in the bill. Indeed, the word employer isn't there. It says a person. So there is a worry that, for example, a trustee who makes a decision and then a few years down the track, someone looks back and says, you should have seen that that reduced the chance of the pension being paid, we're going to put you in jail. You know, that sounds extreme, but the government thinks in black and white there will be people in jail as a result of this. And I just think you can't put legislation on the statute book that's really, really broad and then say, trust us, we, we won't use it. But Lydia, the government did give some guarantees that they were well-intentioned and what they're being accused of was not happen. Is that enough? I think it's a really difficult area, actually, because clearly they want to try and crack down certain areas, but also make it broad enough to think about the future and what might happen going forward and then other issues or other companies or trustees doing things that maybe they shouldn't have, but keeping it as broad as possible. So I think it's a bit of a no-win situation for the schemes as well as the government. I think all we can do is, is trust that from a legal perspective that the right thing will happen. And Steve, do you think people are still saying that this needs to change? People are interacting with DWP, but I remember one of uh, talking to you uh, previously and you saying if this isn't changed now, it won't be changed in the House of Commons. Do you still think that? I think that's right. There is a big difference between the House of Lords where the government doesn't actually have a majority and the House of Commons where it now has a majority of 80 and can practically do anything it likes. So particularly on technical stuff like this, where there's a lot of expertise in the House of Lords, if it doesn't change and if the government doesn't feel any political heat, and I don't think it is yet, then that's it. And the political heat, of course, generally has been in the other direction. It has been the how did BHS happen? How did Carillion happen? We must crack down. Indeed, some of the debates in the House of Lords have had that tone. But I think some of the who've really looked into the detail have realised that these are sweeping powers and it's fine for the government to give examples of how they would use them but examples aren't exhaustive examples don't stop them using it in other ways and if you have a power on the statute book and you go take somebody to court then a defence that says well you never said you might use the powers in this way won't get you very far. And Lydia, this is more intended for defined benefit schemes, at least from the get-go, from the case that we know that spurred all this. Will this have the same impact on the DC side of things? I don't think so. I think this is particularly to cover those DB schemes and, and the issues that have been faced recently. I think it'll be interesting if any of these cases do eventually come to court. And I think the legal bills will probably be pretty big to see how they all pan out. But in the same vein, I think it is important that we try and protect the end members, whether in a DB or DC environment. And yes, it might be too sweeping, but at the moment, I think it's a positive step forward to try and really crack down on things that aren't being thought through within a DB environment. 
And I suppose just as a PS to that, I absolutely agree it's important that benefits are protected. I think the worry is that the costs won't only come if and when someone gets taken to court, but an awful lot of preventative costs, some of which might be entirely dead weight. So in other words, companies not actually changing what they do, but going through an awful lot more process, documenting stuff, having lawyers in the room to prove potentially five, seven, ten years down the track that a decision made was in good faith and so forth. So I think there could be a lot of cost arising from this that may not actually be spent improving benefits. And so what can still be done to try to have the government be aware of this at this moment? I think for me the angle is is trustees in the sense that I, I spoke at the Association of Member Nominated Trustees conference the other day and they were, I think, largely unaware of this risk. But we want people to come forward and be trustees. Well, frankly, if I knew I was at risk of apparently retrospective legal action, criminal legal action for being a trustee and getting something wrong, I'd think very hard about being a trustee in the first place. And I don't think any of us wants to discourage, for example, member-nominated trustees. So I think that's potentially an area where even people who want to crack down on rogue employers don't want to have an unintended consequence. Moving on to the next topic, there were a couple of um, news on the autumn enrollment world last week. We had a review for the government. We also had study from the Society of Pension Professionals highlighting some of the issues that we already knew, but also saying that three out of four pension professionals say employers should be free to statutory enroll any employee they wish. Is this something that you both agree and it's lacking in the process? I think if a company wants to enrol someone, absolutely. I think there is an argument around the fact that some pots might be small and the administration charges could be high in comparison to that and the members, individuals do move around different companies. But if a company wants to provide that provision, then absolutely they should. I think that's right. My only hesitation really is that if you had to legislate to allow this, is that the priority for legislation? Because we already know there's almost a shopping list of things that need to be fixed on auto-enrolment, lowering the starting age, thinking about the band, looking at the employer contributions, looking at the self-employed, auto-escalation and so on and so on. I'm aware as a former minister of the capacity of government to legislate and regulate is finite. You've only got so many hours of parliamentary time, so many hours of parliamentary draftsmen writing laws. So if I could change one thing, it would be the starting age or something, or the employer contribution rate that would be really kind of big ticket. These kind of minor features of the scheme, I agree, could be tidied up, would be better done as a package. But I think in the world we're living in where Parliament can only do so much with Brexit and everything else going on, I'm not sure that would be top of my list. I was just going to say that the problem is for companies, um, it's quite a bitty piece of legislation. Like there's, there's lots of different things administration needs to do. So if you can just make it a lot simpler, say everybody at this age should be enrolled regardless of earnings, it just makes things simpler from an administration point of view as well. So yes, I absolutely get there's a bandwidth within the government, but clearly there's also bandwidth for companies. And the funny thing is people might imagine that employers would be opposed to a sort of expansion of water enrolment at lower ages. And as Lydia says, actually talk to employers and they just want it simple. They don't have to write different letters to 19-year-olds as to 23-year-olds. They're not particularly worried about the cost of paying pensions to 19-year-olds. They do just want it simpler. And I think we ought to be helping, particularly, quotes good employers who want to go further. But the last auto enrolment review, from what of my memory, it doesn't say anything about changing legislation. We all know it's in the mid-20s, but we don't know when. Is it time for, for that legislation to come in? We've got the self-employed as well to think about. So 
there's a various number of, of groups of people that could really benefit from. To be honest, I think I'd probably go for self-employed more just because of the nature of the potential for earnings versus the younger members. But if you could do it in one big sweep, then that'd be great. It is pretty shocking that the auto-enrolment review that they signed off in 2017 and they're talking, as you say, Maria, about implementing in the mid-2020s. And it's all, you know, as ever, you just have to look to the Treasury as the source of the problem. They don't like spending money on tax relief. They want to spend less, not more. Well, OK, but we want people to save more in pensions and they just need to decide which it is. Well, that is, takes us to the next topic, which is pensions tax relief. As every year happens in the coming days to the budget, we have all these theories and all these requests for what can happen. We had the Institute for Fiscal Studies calling on the government to stop what they call a ludicrously generous tax treatment on pensions, but we have other kind of rumours coming in as, the, for example, the age at what you can draw your lump sum from 55 going up to 57, uh, all the issues around a tapered annual allowance. What can we expect from the budget? I know that none of you has a crystal ball, but we can always guess. Indeed, they don't consult me first. We put out an analysis the other day that sort of said, just stepping back from all the rumours that we get every year, and indeed this year twice, because there'll be two budgets, what do we actually know? Well, we know the Conservative manifesto did actually mention pension tax relief, which is quite unusual because it usually doesn't. It mentioned, quotes, the doctors, you know, the higher earners, the tape planning allowance and all of that. I'd be astonished if we don't see something on that. I mean, not least with coronavirus and all that, we want our doctors working. We don't want them retiring early because of lifetime allowance issues. We on them not doing shifts because of annual allowance issues. So I'm sure we'll see something in that space. My fear is it will be tweaking, tinkering, moving thresholds. We are also promised in the Conservative Manifesto something on the low paid, the well over a million lower paid workers who don't get tax relief because their employer is using a net pay scheme, not a relief at source scheme. Mm. I strongly suspect we'll get a review. It's kind of tricky and difficult and messy. And although there's a campaign, the political heat's quite small because unfortunately most of the people who are missing out don't know they're missing out. So I think actually that's where we'll see the action. Beyond that, we might get a sort of we will be reviewing pension tax relief type message. But the second you go any further than that, you need all sorts of anti-force stalling to stop people shoveling money in before you actually change anything. And given what George Osborne did, he didn't actually change things anyway in terms of you know moving to ISIS or whatever. So there is a risk you actually cost yourself money. So you've got to be pretty sure you're going to do a reform before you consult on it. Um, I think it goes back to the conversation we had earlier about complexity and, and trying to keep things simple. And at the moment, the tapering is a bit of a headache for quite a lot of people. And so that scheme to me was just, you know, what was it trying to achieve? I think something much more straightforward, whether it's a clean tax relief for everyone or a set amount for annual allowance rather than, than this tapering would be welcome, I think. And particularly around the NHS, as you say, it's, it's really important. The issue with that is that, from my perspective, I think you cannot introduce something like that without time and consultation, which is something that the doctors don't have at the moment. Yes, I mean, I guess there's a sort of fixing the immediate problem issue. Uh, entirely agree that the taper is just bad law for all sorts of reasons, the kind of unpredictability of the cliff edges and so on. So it would be far better, and you could get rid of that quickly. You could just say from the 6th of April, there ain't no taper. I think that's doable. What you couldn't do from the 6th of April is say, we're going to give everyone 23% tax relief or something. Yeah. That would take years. And that's the sort of thing that would then change behaviour. So um, I think what we're more likely to see is fixes, sticking plasters, you might say, <laughs> on tax relief to deal with the immediate issues and some hint, I suspect, at broader reform. But also the issue is, OK, the government 
and then can say we're gonna scrap the taper but they still want to make that money so they'll need to do something else and we've discussed this several times before the government doesn't seem to know how much money they make um from the, the different allowances so it's a little bit up in the air what they could do Yeah, I think that it's been widely publicised that there is potential to recoup a lot of money back to reform the tax breaks within the pension system. But as we've discussed, you can't just do that overnight. And I think the tapering has caused more issues and costs to individuals than probably was thought through. And doing something around the NHS doctors, I think, is really important. So I think there might be a, a shift to, you know, in my mind, it'd be great if they could just scrap this taper and then rethink about what they want to do and then start the consultation process. Because there's debate within the industry for a number of years. Are we going to go for a lifetime isotype approach or are we going to keep the system The pensions trust system is ingrained in UK law, in, in politics. I can't see it moving very quickly. But if somebody wants to do that, they need to start pretty much straight away. And going to the realms of possibility, if you had a magic wand, what would you see in the budget, Steve? I've got a shopping list of simplifications. So we get rid of the tapered annual allowance, get rid of the money purchase annual allowance, decide whether you want an annual allowance or a lifetime allowance, but not have both. Uh, yeah, where, where do we start, really? So that would do to start, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, absolutely. There's a confusion between lifetime allowance and annual allowance, I think. And also some sort of tidying up of the through retirement piece as well, like how people can actually access their money. You've got off plus in there, you've got drawdown. People are scared of taking annuities because they get locked in or, or they're just taking cash out and all of the advice and information that goes around that. I think there's a huge area there to, to make simpler and to really help people as they come to retirement and beyond. So at the end of the podcast, we have this section which we call Always a Pensions Angle, which is a story that at first is not related to pensions, but it has all the connections there. So I'll leave that to you, Steve. Well, I wanted to share with you that uh, my son is having more lions at the moment. He's actually studying journalism, Maria, so when he grows oh. up he wants to be you, I think, essentially. Poor thing. <laughs> uh, and he tells me that his lecturers are on strike and uh, I read in the uh, weekend press that private school teachers are going on strike and you go to France and you find demonstrations on the streets and, of course, what's the one thing that links them all? It's pensions. And I think it's easy to see pensions as spreadsheets and charts and projections and all the rest of it, but you do see the human side of all of this. And I think in the public sector in the coming years, I mean, we've already had public sector pension strikes and teachers marching down Whitehall. We're going to see a lot more of that, partly because the government's got to rethink all the public sector reforms it's done because of court cases and so on. And just the whole, we talk glibly about demographic pressures, but working out which generation is going to pay, what that means for the workforce. And for me, if I could say one big thing, it's communicating the value of what we've got because you, the highest opt-out rates in pensions are amongst teachers and nurses who are members still of some of the best pension provision we've got. It's truly shocking. I know you've written stories about this, Maria, but because they've been told that their pension's rubbish, well, it's not as generous as it was, but it's still worth having. And if we can't communicate the value of what we've got, then it will go. Thank you for joining us, Stephen Lydia, and join us again in two weeks for another Pensions Expert podcast. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.